You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Sweta, and I'm reporting from ACR 2021 for Room Now. And I'm joined by Dr. Jean Liu, a rheumatologist at Boston, to talk about her study, Hypertension and Ankylosing Spondylitis, the data from the SOAS cohort. And this is to be presented on Sunday, November 7th, in the poster session number 0910. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Liu. Thanks for having me. I can start off by asking you, could you please elaborate on why you embarked on this study? So we know that there is this cardiovascular burden in people with spondyloarthritis, um, including ankylosing spondylitis. And we know that it's greater compared to people in the general population who don't have AS. And we also know that hypertension is pretty prevalent, um, pretty common in people with AS. So um, there have been kind of conflicting um, studies um, looking at um, TNF inhibitor um, initiation and whether that lowers or raises blood pressure um, in people with rheumatic disease, including AS, um, in small studies only, or in slightly larger observational studies, whether um, that effect is seen in people with RA. So because it's unclear, and also because the first-line therapy for AS, which is which are NSAIDs, are definitely associated with um, higher blood pressure and hypertension in the general population, and in AS as well, we wanted to know if um, TNF inhibitor use was associated with instant hypertension. Thank you. And uh, could you please tell us what you expected and what your results really showed? So I think we could have expected it to go either way, but um, I would have expected that um, if there was any result at all that um, TNF inhibitors would actually be associated with lower incident hypertension risk um, in AS because we also think that with systemic inflammation from um, active disease or uncontrolled disease, that that actually increases your cardiovascular risk and could also um, increase your blood pressure, which is sort of a surrogate to a hard cardiovascular outcome like an MI or a stroke. So I would have thought um, if we saw any kind of significant association at all, that it would be a protective association. Um, actually, we um, have um, we were not able to show that there were data that our data supported either an increased risk of hypertension or a decreased risk because um, we just don't have the precision here um, to to show. Um, that association. So all of our confidence intervals cross the null and um, our point estimates are actually pretty close to one. So um, perhaps there really is no association, but we also can't say that either. Thank you. And uh, again, like, but, uh, like just continuing from that, what do you feel were the challenges that you faced that this wasn't possible to prove that this was a, there was a protective effect? Um, well, it's an observational study, so you can't ever prove that um, there is a, a causal association. I did use causal inference methods, but um, when you use causal inference methods in observational data, you have to make a series of assumptions um, about the data and how they were measured and what the relationships between variables are. And if any of those assumptions that you make are not true, you can't really um, have this inference that one uh, exposure X causes outcome Y. So it's it's really just um, 
it's a feature of the of the design, I would say. Um, I think you your question is also about like what are the difficulties about this. Um, I think we we're just we're still at this question of um, if someone is at particularly higher cardiovascular risk and they're on NSAIDs, should you um, be more aggressive about transitioning them to a TNF inhibitor? Would that make things better? And I think we are still at that. Um, position where you have to really have an individualized discussion with your patient about their cardiovascular risk factors um, and about the knowns. And I think the known is that NSAIDs do increase blood pressure and may increase their cardiovascular um, outcome risk. So maybe transitioning them to um, a TNF inhibitor might be better in, in that situation, but can't really say for sure with these data. Thank you. Um, and so what I did notice that the majority of the population studied were Caucasian males. Do you think there would have been any difference if this was an African-American population, given that there is some data out there that they have a higher risk of being hypertensive? So that's a really um, good question. And a really, I could give a really nuanced answer there. So um, as you know, rheumatic diseases are understudied in non-white populations. And although our understanding of ankylosing spondylitis is that it's a predominantly white and male disease, um, perhaps this is an understanding based on um, selection bias in our, our studies or epidemiologic studies, and that we just have a lot of understudied populations still where this disease is not well characterized. So because of this paucity of data, I can't really make... Um, I guess on what this would show. Um, I think if we had a larger um, black population with AS that we could study in the same way, um, but observationally, I think we would um, possibly see, um, maybe possibly see an association, but then you would have to say, well, what are the unmeasured um, confounders in that observational study that gives us an association because do we actually think that it's something related to biologics and bio, or biologic effects like genetic effects or is it actually um, unmeasured confounding from social economic being structural things? So um, kind of a complicated answer to um, basically just describe um, a broad issue with um, understudied populations and um, a need to include um, more inclusive um, populations in our research studies so that we, we really are able to generalize. Thank you, that was excellent. Um, and my last one, uh, what do you think future studies should be focusing on on this topic? I think if we had, um, we had a larger observational study um, on this topic, um, we could try to get at this question again, but then with larger databases like administrative or claims data, um, you would lose the granularity of the data variables, which would um, then also affect and bias the results from an observational study. Um, and this is not something that we would likely measure with a randomized controlled trial. So um, I, I think um, not sure that we would um, have a firmer answer here. Um, for this research question specifically. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Lu, for joining us. This was a fantastic discussion. Please remember to check out this very interesting poster and log into RoomNow for more ACR coverage. Hello, welcome to RoomNow's coverage of ACR Convergence 2021. 
My name is Mrinalini Day and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee based in Liverpool in the UK. And today I'd like to highlight abstract number 1305, which is on undiagnosed depression in axial spondyloarthropathy and the negative impact on patient outcomes. And this is by Sinead Maguire and colleagues who are based in Dublin. So it is well known that there is a high prevalence of depression in patients with AXPA, which can impact disease activity as well as affecting quality of life and other personal and social aspects um, of a person's life. So in this study, patients um, completed a survey, including the PHQ-9 and Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale for Depression or the HADS-D score. And in total, there were 71 patients with AXPA included. 70% um, of them were male. Almost 10% of the patients had an abnormal um, HAD score and about 24% had moderate to severe PHQ-9 and that correlates with um, possible underlying depression. It was found that females were more likely to have a higher mean HADS-D score with abnormal scores in almost 20% of females compared with 6% of males. Um, interestingly, the BASDI scores and the quality of life scores were significantly worse as well in patients with abnormal HADC scores. So in summary, a large proportion of AXPAR patients recorded high um, HADSD scores and PHQ-9 scores, indicating possible undiagnosed depression. Um, and crucially, these patients were noted to have significantly worse disease activity um, and quality of life as compared to patients with normal scores. So not only should um, clinicians regularly screen for depression um, and other mental health problems in patients with AXPA, but also be generally aware that depression and low mood can both contribute to decreased quality of life and disease activity scores, and also in turn be the result of these, indicating the importance of a multidisciplinary approach to the management of AXPA and taking the time to consider these factors um, when assessing patients in clinic. Um, if you'd like to know more about this um, great abstract, um, the poster will be presented as part of the spondyloarthritis diagnosis manifestations and outcomes session on Monday, um, and it's number 1305. And if you'd like more content on ACR21, um, don't forget to follow RoomNow on Twitter, or you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Minnie Day, or go to the RoomNow website for much more content. Thank you for watching. This is Maral Ramahi from Indianapolis, Indiana, reporting for RoomNow on ACR Convergence 2021. Ever wonder if there are predictors of mortality in patients with RA-related lung disease, whether it's airway disease, pulmonary nodules, pleural effusions, or ILD? Well, Abstract 0290 is a single center retrospective study of about 9,800 patients, mean age of about 52 years old, with biopsy-confirmed RA-related lung disease. And this study showed that there was a higher mortality associated with having RA-related ILD with an odds ratio of 2.28. It was a higher mortality associated with having RA-related pleural effusions with an odds ratio of 3.3, and a higher mortality associated with having an older age at RA-related uh, RA lung disease diagnosis with an odds ratio of 1.04. And even more notably, it showed that methotrexate use was protective with an odds ratio of 0.4. So maybe this will help decrease hesitancy of use of methotrexate in patients with lung disease. 
This is Morala Rumpke reporting to you for Room Now on ACR Convergence 2021. Please tune in to roomnow.com for more coverage of ACR. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now, and you wouldn't believe it. I have the famous Dr. Al Kim here. And, you know, he's an incredible researcher, a friend, and he's done amazing work with COVID, lupus outcomes, as well as basic science. Welcome, Al. Thank you so much, Catherine, for the invite and for um, and um, I look forward to the discussion. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm going to pick your brain. So first of all, you know, your name is everywhere, like on every uh, almost every other abstract I'm coming across. I see Alkim, Alkim. Could you go ahead and summarize um, basically all the exciting work here at ACR that that you all are presenting and, and with your group? Yeah, so specifically with our uh, kind of internal group at WashU and at uh, UCSF, we've done the Coverapad study or continue to do the Coverapad study, which is COVID-19 vaccine responses in patients with autoimmune disease. The observational longitudinal study examining both acute and long-term immune responses and also reactogenicity along with patient-reported outcomes uh, following COVID vaccination in the immunosuppressed with autoimmune diseases. So there's going to be a lot of uh, both um, kind of uh, descriptive data, but also mechanistic data downstream once we find some very interesting relationships that have yet been uncovered um, in terms of a relationship between immunosuppression and vaccin uh, vaccination responses. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, all the data that you presented. And the one that caught me by surprise was the fact that patients on TNF inhibitors and, you know, how like in vitro, albeit it's in vitro studies, but they had poor neutralization to the Delta variant. Um, could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, the, there is some background to this. Uh, mice that are deficient in TNF-alpha um, do not mount germinal center responses. I'm going to get to why germinal center responses are important in a second. But in our study, we did see that people on TNF monotherapy, so they were not on concomitant DMARD or steroid or antimalarial use, um, had um, a greater proportion of patients that had poor neutralization of Delta variant compared to other immunosuppressives and also the immunocompetent group. And by the time we went about five to six months out from their final vaccination, the initial series of mRNA vaccination, a small sample size, now it's about five people, none of them could neutralize Delta. Okay, so let's go back to the Journal Center. So our, uh, uh, our co-senior author and very close colleague, Ali Elabedi, who is an exceptional B-cell biologist, um, has published in Nature uh, a couple of papers revealing the role of memory B-cells as really blossoming antibody responses in germinal centers. So what happens when you first get immunized, like the first introduction to antigen, the, uh, uh, the germinal center in the ipsilateral arm that you get the injection. So if I get my uh, vaccination, my left deltoid, it'll be my left axillary lymph node. That lymph node actually harbors almost all of the vaccine responses. And what I mean by vaccine responses are these germinal center responses. These germinal center responses, if you go back, this can cause some post-traumatic for some of your listeners here. Um, they help generate these um, highly uh, uh, high affinity um, B cell receptors. They eventually will grow up and uh, produce antibodies. On top of that though, part of that affinity process, there's another process called somatic hypermutation. That process, which increases affinity, also increases antibody diversity. Now go back to the TNF knockout mice that don't have germinal centers. 
So theoretically, if you give a vaccine to, uh, say, TNF knockout mice, or even people with are uh, having low levels of TNF because they're on inhibitors, you could potentially attenuate or stop the germ center process. And that's important because we all got vaccinated against common variant, yet most of the immunocomp people are able to perfectly defend ourselves against Delta variant. How? It's because of the antibody blossoming response in the germal center. So the, when you block TNF, there's a theoretical risk here that you may also then blunt these uh, antibody blossoming responses. And maybe that's what we're seeing. Now, having said that, kind of the nitty gritty behind all of this too, is that remember that knockout mice are deficient of that protein sense neonatal life. Whereas in the real world, um, adults that are started on TNF inhibitors for say RA, you know, they've had it for a long time. Then there's a partial reduction through medication. How those two correlate with one another is a little bit unclear to us. So Michael Diamond, who's one of the immunovirologists here at WashU, is starting some mouse studies to better examine this relationship, both with SARS-CoV-2 vaccination, but also influenza vaccinations to see how broad this phenomenon could be. That's incredible. You know, there's some parts of the world um, where they're doing three doses, and then six months later, they're going to do the booster. Mm -hmm. So I, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of vaccine, right? But, it is. But yeah. maybe, I mean, it might be needed for patients, you know, who have been on rituximab or mycophenolate or, or some of the other things. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, so I think this is a really important point. So um, again, Ali El Abedi just had a preprint drop five days ago on uh, uh, BioArchive. Uh, showing that uh, similar to influenza vaccination, that germal center responses in humans, so that he actually got lymph node tissue, and I was one of his subjects, up to six months post-vaccination, germal center responses were still ongoing in all of these subjects, right? Again, this is without any ad additional introduction of antigen. Now, think of a particular scenario, say anti-TNF, where you are blunting that response, right? If you get a booster, you could regenerate that response and get the antibody blossoming that you should have had in the first place. Now, um, uh, the preprint that has the Delta neutralization data um, doesn't have data that um, was added into our revision for this paper with Mike Diamond, but of the five people that had no Delta responses, all of them got boosted and one month afterwards, they all generated Delta responses. So this tells me, first of all, that even in the, and none of them held their TNF. So this tells me, first of all, that the germ center response is potentially restartable, even in the context of TNF inhibition. So this opens up the question about holding medicines, which is a completely different topic. But more importantly, from the immunologic point of view, memory B cells are absolutely critical for that antibody blossoming response. They are being generated in these TNF inhibitors. So this now opening, is opening up another question about antibody function in TNF inhibitor people and whether or not that's also um, uh, dis dysregulated or dysfunctional. But to answer your question more directly, I think the more doses your body sees, you know, more safely with vaccination than natural infection, the more you're able to blossom your antibody response. Right, we're getting boosted a little bit every day. Had we way. been at ACR in person, yeah. we might be boosted a little more. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 right, exactly. <laughs> All right. So lupus has been so dear to your heart. I've listened to you lecture. Um, tell me, what do you think it's going to be the biggest impact 
in regards to the lupus world? I mean, what have you seen at ACR or even outside of ACR that you think is going to be the next big thing? Yeah, so macro is clearly the explosion of therapeutics, right, that are going, that are, have been or will be FDA approved. Um, this is uh, giving us uh, a, a range of choices that is foreign to lupologists. Um, it harkens back to our training when we were able to have many options for RA patients, right? So it's going to be interesting to see how the ecosystem decides like how to prioritize things. I mean, I think a lot of uh, uh, lupus uh, physicians will um, obviously clearly uh, engage with shared decision-making the first question I ask is whether or not they want an injectable or a pill, right? And what's interesting is um, there's pretty strong opinions, pretty much 50-50. Uh, they're, uh, they're needle-averse people. And then there are people that say there's no way I'm ever going to take pills because I already take 12 or 16 a day. I'm going to go ahead and get an injection. So that ends up simplifying that narrative for, with existing therapeutics. I think in the future, there's going to be, um, I think the AMP effort continues to pump out just really interesting observations. It's so hard to get human tissue and do detailed phenotypic analyses, immunologic analyses on them. But it, obviously, they've, uh, you know, through the expertise of their you know, large uh, team, you know, they have the ability to be able to get high quality data that will, will lead, likely lead to meaningful therapeutics downstream, whether that's going to be, you know, again, interferon-based, JAK-based, again, using existing therapeutics and repurposing them, or will it be newer things, you know, kind of proteasome is kind of old, but it's kind of new. There's that topoisomerase 1 uh, inhibitor, you know, complement is going to be emerging as a general theme in terms of therapeutics in the future. Um, and then there are numerous other like bispecific molecule antibodies that are going to be targeting, you know, multiple cytokines or a cell type with a cytokine or two receptors on a cytokine, on a cell type, like on a B cell. Um, you know, I, I think the other one that I'm really interested to see would be inhibitors that block the uh, follicular helper T, uh, and uh, follicular helper T cell and B cell interaction within germinal centers. Um, you know, I think, or actually more specifically, potentially extra follicular pathways. So B cells appear to be uh, be activated through two different mechanisms, and in sense has nicely nicely shown these extra follicular B cell pathways our main source of autoantibodies, both in lupus, but also COVID-19. So how do we specifically target that? That doesn't necessarily um, disrupt the germinal center itself would be very um, lucrative. You know, I think that's an interesting pathway to, to pursue. So, you know, I, I would say people like obviously Peggy Crow, you know, Michelle Kallenberg can speak much more about the specifics of, of interferon therapies, which I think is another important uh, field that continues to be dissected out. But, you know, to me and my own biases, those are the interesting things. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of ACR has been dedicated to preclinical autoimmunity too, which, you know, they're looking at targeting um, pathways before an autoimmune disease can even start. Your thoughts on this? You know, I, I think um, these are admirable studies. Uh, the, the hardest part um, that it's going to be difficult to, you know, kind of churn out is, you know, are you uh, looking at people at risk or are you looking at the, say, preclinical group, right? Because idea, you know, um, and are there differences between the two? Um, we only can measure what we can measure, and it's not like we get uh, weekly blood draws 
from healthy subjects who are, say, autoantibody positive you know, over time. So I think this is going to be the one you know, criticism that you can't really address right now in those type of studies. But I, you know, at the end of the day, even if you're preclinical, you know, if you if this if the introduction of the therapeutic is modest in terms of risk, let's say hydroxychloroquine, number needed to treat to prevent versus number needed to harm, you know, it seems like it would be in the favor in number needed to treat, right? It seems like that, right? So anyway, I I think these I I can't even imagine myself engaging in that type of research because the logistics and trying to kind of work out how you're going to you know, find these people, define them is overwhelming to me. So I really give these investigators a ton of credit for, you know, thinking about how to best address this. You know, of course, you know, David Karp with Lupus and then, you know, Kevin Dean, Jeff Sparks with RA and numerous other efforts. I mean, these are just, you know, I'm just floored that, you know, these studies are ongoing. Yeah, I really appreciate that you allowed me to pick your brain and I wish I had more time to to pick it some more, but there is one burning question that all our viewers want to know. You ready? Oh yeah, no, no, no. do What's I have a choice? Sk- all right, <laughs> what's your skincare regimen? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's like everybody who watches you and we're like, holy cow. And it's not a filter because I've seen you in person. You got great skin. <laughs> oh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, the skincare regimen is largely genetic and epigenetic, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 use, I don't do very, I, I wash my face. Um, I don't even really know which soap I use. I use a Jergens body lotion uh, for my face because that's all I got, you know, on my sink. Um, I'm, I'm not picky. I just, you know, you, you, know, you got to make your skin tough in order for it to, you know, absorb the environmental insults around you. There you have it, viewers. <laughs> I really appreciate you, Al. I always love interviewing you. And you know what? We're going to talk again. Hope to yeah. see you at the next ACR meeting. Right, take this care. Is, Thank you. <laughs> this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. I'm also known as the Dow Index. Hi, good afternoon from day two at Convergence. Uh, it's been a great session. Right now, I'm checking in from Summit, New Jersey at the Institute of Rheumatic and Autoimmune Disease. Um, I'm Eric Dine. It's, it's great to be part of Room Now, Room now uh, chatting about more of the wonderful posters and, and abstracts here uh, throughout Convergence. I'm going to talk about abstract 0563, where they looked at validating the FRAC score in U.S. population-based study of patients with RA. Um, we know that you know when you're when you're thinking about your um, patients with rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis, you always want to be thinking about uh, fracture risk because uh, we know that they're at increased risk. We know that the FRAC score um, has an account in there that, that um, you can select that they have rheumatoid arthritis and that elevates their risk in their FRAC score, but that has not actually been validated in the past. So this is an epidemiology study. Like so many of them, it comes from Olmstead County, Minnesota, uh, and it um, is looking at patients with RA age 40 to 90 years old, uh, and then there's a comparator arm without RA. And what they do is they use the calculator uh, and, um, and calculate the expected number of fractures and compare to the, the actual fractures seen. So um, 
as we all know, if you've done the FRAX calculation, which is very easy on the computer, you, you put in the age, sex, race, ethnicity, family history, BMI, RA, um, fracture history, smoking, steroids, alcohol, all the secondary uh, causes for osteo osteoporosis. Uh, and it gives you the, the 10 year fracture risk. Uh, so in, in the cohort that they followed, uh, the FRAX had predicted um, a risk of major osteoporotic fractures uh, of 67 fractures in the cohort over the 10 years. And they found 76, so just slightly elevated. Uh, and that incidence ratio was 1.1, uh, which was not significant. When it comes to hip fractures, there's 21 observed fractures compared to predicted of 23. Uh, so again, uh, very close to the predicted values. Um, they then separated it uh, by broken down by age and sex, uh, and each of them had an incident ratio close to one. So there was um, really no part where they found that the FRAC score uh, in actual um, uh, observed fractures deviated from the expected amount from the formula. So I thought this was very encouraging. It shows us that the calculations that many of us have been using for the FRAC score uh, does have some validation when compared to real world data. Uh, and it's something that it's important to, to think about calculate in your patients uh, and make sure that they're on therapies if needed to decrease their fracture risk. Uh, so um, great poster here uh, and, and lots more um, from throughout day two of convergence. Uh, plenty more information coming. Check out Room Now for all of its great content. Uh, you can follow me at Eric Dine MD on Twitter uh, and I'll be checking in throughout the conference.